And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Cood Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Schran and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest Sylvia Morena Garcia on the Cood Street Podcast! And we're back, and welcome, Sylvia. Um, there are a couple of things we'd like to talk to you about, uh, and maybe some things you'd like to talk about, but the two that come to mind are what I think is a wonderful first novel, Signal to Noise, which has been out for a while now. Um, from Solaris, um, and and you also made a very provocative, interesting, and thoughtful um, post on locusmag.com about strong female characters, which it seems to me has to relate in some way with your main female character in Signal to Noise. Am I right about that? Yes. <laughs> you are. <laughs> okay. Okay. The, the other question I have... And this has got to be something that affects, it may be a generational thing, and I've not read all the reviews of Signal to Noise, but music is really important, uh, it seems to me, in this novel. And it's, you, you sort of pushed all my music buttons in it. Now, is this, was this your dad's record collection that you're actually writing about? I guess we should back up a little bit and explain that essentially this is what many people would call a magic realist novel that takes place in Mexico City and involves some kind of spell casting that involves old vinyl records that belonged to the protagonist's father. Is, is that a fair enough description of the outline? I think so. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so how, you mentioned everybody yeah. from Robert Johnson to, um, to Spanish bands that I didn't know about, to, to Leonard Cohen, to Procol Harum. Uh, to Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday. That's a very eclectic collection of music you got at the heart of this. Yeah, my grandfather was a radio announcer, and both of my parents worked in radio. So we ah. had an ex I had growing up an, an extensive record collection, and I, and I grew up literally in in recording studios. They, my mother used to say that I was a baby that would only cry on cue because she would bring me into the radio cabin and I would be completely quiet until there was a break and then, you know, I would fuss and then I would <laughs> quiet up. So, yeah, it's, it's, they say, yeah, it's in my genes, apparently. She's like, so you got this, this background, this familial background in, in radio, in music. Uh, I assume this has led to a, a, an ongoing lifelong passion for music. What was it, though, that sparked for you the desire to you know, turn it into your form of art, into writing novels? Of, of writing novels in general, or, or this? No, or writing this, this novel. What, what, what brought you to, to, to bring this into writing, you know, as, as the subject for your first novel? Okay, yeah. Um, I, I had wanted to do something that used sound and radio for a long time, because I grew up with it, so I, I just wanted to use it in some way, and I tried in, in, in a previous novel that didn't end well, um, and I, I didn't do anything with that book, and so that failed, and so this was my, my second attempt at writing a novel and at trying to deal, um, somehow incorporate uh, music and radio, and the first one was a lot more about radio than about music, and this one was, you know, a, a, lot, um, a lot more in, about music, but I... I I just grew up with music in my household. Um, as as a matter of fact, just like books, music was one of the basic uh, food items that we had in our in our basket. And and I I wanted to do that. And I also liked the '80s a lot because I grew up in the '80s. I was a child mm -hmm. in the '80s, and I felt that it was an interesting time period. And I wanted to kind of revisit it. Um, and and revisit and revisit that um, uh, that music. So it was just it was just a fun a fun thing, and uh, it was a chance to play with some stuff that I had wanted to play with for a while, and it just hadn't gelled in short story form or in my previous attempt at a book. But it's really about more than just. I mean, and I don't get get this you know talk to you either. But it's really not about nostalgia for music, though. It, it's picking up a real uh, ongoing continuing energy with it that you can bring into the story you've chosen to tell I mean what where did you start with the story that is signal to noise uh, well I 
I got the um, the idea for it started really with the characters, and it started with with two. I I had um. I, I sometimes just you know I'm sitting and I'm not doing anything in particular, and I just get scenes or ideas about something. And I and I think it was one morning when I woke up, and I think I had been dreaming, or shortly after I woke up, uh, I, I thought about um, two people meeting each other in the rain and looking at each other across the street, but they don't speak. And I was, I was interested in knowing where that could go, so I just kept thinking about it, and the more I kept thinking about it, um, the more I started hearing this character's voice in my head, which is also something that happens with me. I, hear, I do hear voices in my head. Um, I, and, I, and I started playing around with that voice, that kind of personality, and that was Meche. Uh, so, so she was kind of like the first thing that emerged from it. And the other thing that emerged was Sebastian, who was the guy that was standing across the street, sort of who is this guy who's standing with her across the street. So I had two, um, um, uh, two kind of like ideas of a character, one of it very strong. She was, she was a strong personality, and, and, and I knew her very quickly. And, and then I had to do something with them because what what were they doing and like i said i for a very long time i had wanted to do something that had to do um uh with music and i and i thought it was just the perfect chance they were like the perfect characters and i i also do tend to have themes about home and nostalgia and that kind of thing so it all kind of gelled together. I don't remember the exact moment when I decided that it was going to be music and magic, and I've been trying to think about it, and I just can't remember. I, I think it was also one of those things where after I had um, two characters that needed a setting, I, I was like, I don't know, chopping an onion or walking around, and then I was just thinking something like, you know, you, you know, music is like magic, and then, you know, I had it. I, I was like, I have a plot now. So... It, it it was it was a bit of an uh, or quite an organic process, and of course it became refined afterwards. In um, how am I going to frame the story? How is it going to be told? It's going to be told in two parallel timelines that go back and forth, um, and this and that and the other. But in the beginning, it it really started just with that one scene, and and I was just intrigued, and I wanted to know who these people were, and music and magic. It yeah, I mean. That seemed to me like a really clear and mm. logical thing. Like, of course, music is magic, and we have such a strong relationship with it. Why wouldn't it be something literally magical? So, in in finishing a first, you know, your first novel, was there a point where it became more of a, a technical challenge than a creative one, or was the technical stuff mostly a backgrounded thing for you? You found. Uh, it it flows pretty easily. I I've had a lot more problems with other things. This this one I um I had the beats. I had a certain number of beats that I wanted to hit. I had a certain number of scenes that I knew that were going to happen almost since the beginning, and that I wrote. I I wrote um, the second to last chapter was something that I sketched out when I started, so I knew that I was heading to that point, even though I wasn't sure exactly how I was going to get there. And then, um, and then I had to solve, solve technical problems. Um, once I got started, I, I didn't know all the songs I was going to be dealing with, so I, I had to go back and, and look at when things were released and listen to the mm. music again and ask my, I asked my dad um, a few questions about music and about some kind of stuff. Um, and we normally, we don't ever talk about music, so that's only one of the few times in my life that I have ever gone to him and asked him that, because, yeah. Um, I guess when somebody knows a lot about... I, I guess there's a need... Sometimes you don't want to be like your parents, and that's me not wanting to be like my parents, is that I never got into music like my dad did. So it was a kind of a strange thing for me having to talk to him about music at certain points when I was um, asking him some stuff. But I did, and, and, and so then, like, the biggest technical challenge really was, was the music. That was one of the, that was probably the biggest thing. Um, it was not just the years, but choosing the right songs and the right feel 
And, and I left a lot of music out. I had a really big list of songs, and in the end, not all of them went out, even though I think there's like 50-something songs mentioned in the book, and a bunch mm-hmm. of artists, and the two you pick um, to represent a specific time period or, and mood when there's so, there's so many singers, and I also had the jazz thing, which is another time period, so who do you grab from here and there? So, so that was kind of interesting, but... Um, but it was fun, and, and it was something that I had I had never thought about music the way I had to think about it when I was writing this book. Well, it sounds like you were having fun, but you also had to assign different levels of power to different kinds of music. Like, I mean, the, the conceit is that some of these vinyl records have magical powers and some don't, and there's a, there's a bit, uh, I guess, more than halfway through the book where they're, they're really on a kind of fantasy quest. They have to find a vinyl copy of A Whiter Shade of Pale, which happens to be one of those things that just gets me every time I listen to it. Um, and it's been... Re- so, how did you pick that song for the quest, more or less? Whiter Shade of Pale. Yeah, that's... Um, I sometimes visit before this. I, I did this before, but I, but I did it a lot more when I was researching this. I sometimes go and look at websites that, you know, it's like the meaning of lyrics, and people write what they think the meaning of a lyric is. And uh-huh. for the most part, there doesn't seem to be much of a fight about what the lyrics of something means. I mean, there's one song by the police, and I can't remember which one it is, but people say it's either a stalker song or a love song. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to remember which one Every it is. Every Breath You Take. Every Breath You Take, that's right, yeah. yeah. That one, and, and so when, when you go to the boards, people are divided between, some people are like, this is a horrible stalker song, and some other people are like, well, this is a beautiful love song, and I played it at my wedding. So, but I don't think I have ever found a song that divides people more than Whiter Shade of Pale. Really? When I went to the boards and I was trying to see what people thought, I think there were like 55 different theories about what the song means. So everybody had a completely, an, abs- an absolutely different theory about what the song meant to them. And so I thought, for that reason, it was an interesting song, because nobody can agree what is going on in the song. Um, yeah. On a personal note, I thought it was a love song. Um, I talked to my father. Um, <laughs> he said <laughs> it, was, it was an okay interpretation, so he agreed with me. So I thought, I'm going to run with that. But, but I, I picked it in a way because I... It's a different song for the time period. I think it's a special kind of sound that you don't hear all the time, especially in that time period. I, 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 I mean, I, my dad had monkey, let me know the monkeys music and the, and, and, and the Beach Boys and that kind of stuff um, from when he was young. And, and, and that song is, just sounds completely different from some of the other stuff that's popular in the time period. It almost seems to be timeless in a way uh, that you wouldn't identify some music from that era. And on the other hand, yeah, it, it has this quality of almost being everything to everyone or being or multiple meanings in a song. And and I was and I was very interested in that because I think with songs and with music and also with other media, but especially with music, there's the prescribed meaning of uh-huh. of the piece and then there then there's the part that you give the the meaning the meaning that you give the piece. So sometimes if you have for example uh, that song by the police, you played it at your wedding, it means something completely different because you have a different association with it, right? Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's a romantic song for you, it's a love song, it, and and I think that with music, um, that's that's an especially fascinating quality of music and of certain pieces, um, and, and A Whiter Shade of Pale just seems to be one of those pieces that is so hard to pin down. In philosophy, and science and technology studies, oh, I'm going to show my other slide here, there's something uh-huh. that's called a fire object, and it is something that's slippery and that um, has several meanings at the same time. And A Whiter Shade of Pale, philosophically, is that embodied in music, I think. Oh, that's fascinating, because I... I've never paid a lot of attention to the. I, I love that long instrumental bridge, which I think is borrowed from Bach's Well-Tempered Clavier, um, that the, the, the opens it. And so the, I, I just listen to it more musically than in terms of lyrics. But I can understand exactly what you're saying about songs that seem to be um, flashpoints for all kinds of people. 
Um, mm-hmm. And it seems to me that's the same thing that you can do with a fantasy story, um, that, that people are equally divided over that. So one of the things I'm curious, oh, before I get into that, I have another question, because anybody who's read the book is, is thinking the same thing I'm thinking right now, which is what did your father think of the father in the novel? I haven't asked him. <laughs> <laughs> He's not a bad guy. He's written this great <laughs> history of music, which we'll never see. <laughs> yeah, no, my, um, I, I sent the, I promised my dad I was going to send the book, so I signed a book and I sent it to him. Um, but the post to get to Mexico takes a lot longer, so I'm thinking by now he probably has it, but I should, I should ring him up. My father is also really funny that it's really hard to speak to him. Uh, he's never available for anything, and um, and the best way of communicating with him, for, for me, the, the only way that I can kind of talk to him is that we will sometimes talk in Facebook through Messenger, but he uses emojis and emoticons to talk to me, so a lot of times he won't even write a phrase, he will just put a happy face or a sad face, and yeah, he's a man of few words. Um, Literally, so it's really difficult to talk to him. Um, and some once in a while, every few months, I'll phone him, and we will actually have a full conversation. But that that yeah, that takes that takes some effort uh, from it. Um, I talked to my mother. My mother read it, and and she liked it. Um, and and I also yeah, I thought you know that's gonna be a that's gonna be a fun. Uh, discussion too because I, I wrote a story that uh, was a finalist for an award and it was called the Doppelgangers and um, and it, it was about these two kind of like lousy parents and and the child ends up switching them for doubles <laughs> that are better you know and my mother read it and um, and she was really offended about it um, she was really offended and she kind of sat down and she was like what did we do to you <laughs> <laughs> So she was really angry and she was mad because she saw herself in the character and I think she phoned my dad and she told on me and she was like, she wrote about us and yeah, so that, so I thought she was going to be really mad about this one, but she was actually, um, she was actually okay with it. Uh, she said she cried, uh, <laughs> because she felt really sad at some point, um, and that I was very mean, but in the sense of being mean to the characters, not, you know, not to her. So that was good that she didn't start yelling at me um, after she read it, and and she told me it was a good book, and and that and that's a difficult thing because my mother can be very very critical of me, and you know she will sometimes be the kind of person who's like, well, why don't you write some of that stuff that sells like twi- that, like like Twilight, like that Twilight, <laughs> or like that Fifty Shades, you know, and it's horrible, and it's like, mom, you're not helping. Um, at all, but um, yeah, she, you know, her, her, her tips for, you know, doing business better or whatever don't help at all. But, uh, but in this case, she was, she was kind of, she was strangely or oddly supportive and she liked it and she was like, no, I like the book. It's a good book. You should be proud of the book. So I was like, that's okay. So um, I'm thinking my dad will also be okay with it, but like I said, he's a man of few words. Um, so he will probably like paste a happy face, a smiley <laughs> happy face, yellow one, and that'll be like his response to it. Like, yeah, that's good. Or, or he might, you know, he might be more critical, and he might actually say, you know, you miss such and such song. Um, yeah. If he gets yeah. into his critical thing, he oh, might he gets, be if like, he gets to that you know, point, yeah. yeah. If he gets to that point, yeah. He like, well, he might be like, you know, you do realize that there's no Rolling Stones in this, and that's a major <laughs> faux pas. <laughs> um, so you you missed on that one, Sylvia. But uh, but for the most part, I think he'll just paste a little some some image that will represent his emotions. <laughs> I'm curious, how important are the autobiographical connections in the story to you? I mean, it sounds like there's an awful lot of resonances in your life. Uh, yeah, but there's a lot of resonance with everything I write. Um, and um, my my husband knows this, and I think I've killed him in stories like three times, <laughs> and he's okay with it. Um, and right now I'm writing something where he started reading the draft of what would be my third novel, and um, he he said, oh, this is a really great psychological understanding of a man, you know? And then 
of, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then he paused and he was like, because you totally stole me. Oh. <laughs> and, oh. and I was like, yeah. And he was like, and he was like, those questions you were asking me, like, you know, like, don't think I don't remember that you were quizzing me about stuff, you know, not so long ago. And it's there, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not an exact copy, but like, yeah, there's some, you know, there's some stuff that I, that I borrowed for him. So he knows it. And, and everybody has been kind of warned in my life that they may be used as material for something, um, it's not intentional. It just happens, I think you know. That's, that's true of all writers, though. I mean, to some extent, it's uh, it, it's something you can't avoid. And there, there's a whole subgenre of plays and novels, and even a few movies about about writers trying to deal with their own family members. Uh, with uh, there's a famous play by Robert Anderson called "I Never Sang for My Father." The scene <laughs> reminds me. He, he's written a he's written a novel, and Gene Hackman is in the movie. As a matter of fact, and Melvin Douglas places. And all, the, all Melvin Douglas says, he's not going to read the book. He looks at the author photo on the back of the book, and he says, I don't like that photo. I like a photo where somebody looks me right in the eye. And that's pretty <laughs> much his whole attitude toward the book. But one of the things I'm curious about, and you mentioned your background in philosophy, and you've got a character, Sebastian, who's clearly a very kind of, um, I don't know, intellectual punk, something. He reads Nietzsche. He, he, re he loves Henry James. He's, he's trying to get Nietzsche to read Henry James. <laughs> Um, and then when we look back at your, uh, the, the, the piece you wrote on locusmag.com, you seem to have a lot of familiarity with, with fantasy tropes and settings. So I'm kind of wondering, when you have a book like this, which is frankly hard to position, because I think it would appeal to a lot of fantasy readers if they know about it, um, but if they know about it, maybe the magic realist people over on the mainstream end won't know about it, and, and you really want to reach both re readerships, don't you? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so, I, I, I guess the question is how much of your familiarity with the whole fantasy and science fiction field kind of lay somewhere in the background of this? Yeah, I no, I, I do I know um, well, how do I put this um, it's a weird thing because I'm Mexican, right? And, and I grew up in Mexico I didn't move to Canada until I was an adult uh -huh. I grew up uh reading by choice and also because of my parents, because they liked fantasy and science fiction, uh, both the literary canon that was um, appropriate for a young Latin American person and a lot of pulp fiction and fantasy, especially mm -hmm. stuff from the 60s, 70s, which my parents had in their library. So I, I lived in two worlds uh, in, in a kind of way. And... I have read a lot from both from both areas, and I don't like to distinguish between them. If that makes any no, sense, no, it's perfect sense. It's, it's, it's yeah, and, and it's very it's very difficult sometimes to say. Um, uh, we 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 have marketing boxes, right? For for ease of use, obviously, people want to go to certain shelf to to find certain things. But I, I find it frustrating sometimes how people will not read outside of those boxes and miss out on some other stuff because they think Absolutely. that it should constitute this small uh, universe. And I, I get as frustrated with people who say that there's nothing good in, in speculative fiction as speculative fiction people who say there's nothing good in literary because okay. there is, and, and there's quite a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, there, and so I, I yeah, I know, I, I, I think I, I made a, a terrible choice <laughs> in trying to position something that, that <laughs> occupies two spaces at the same time, but that is just my natural for this position, and, and I like to also explore the boundaries of what makes one category and not, and so I, I've written Lovecraftian, Lovecraftian stuff, and, and, oh. and I like to push as much, sometimes, as much as I can, as to what makes something something or not and and that for example has caused me some of my short stories to not be accepted in certain markets because people have said this is not science fiction or you know this is not fantasy and it is i mean to me it is but they look at it and 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 you know like i did something that was steampunk but it was set in a in a cigar factory 
and and there was a second set of elements. It was very light, but it was it it was about a worker, a woman rolling cigars in a, in a cigar factory. It had a lot of historical research. This was the way cigars were rolled in in Mexico City in the 1900s. This was, these were the factory conditions, but people rejected it as steampunk. They said I should add maybe more robots <laughs> or a happy ending. And I thought that's not the point. It's a point about industrialization, you know. Yeah. And and the kind of narrative that we don't see in steampunk, that was the whole point of the story. But people wanted, you know, m you know, put another airship, and maybe if you add like a robot revolt, we will buy it. And I was like, no. So ended up it ended up it ended up going in my second short story collection. Um, yeah, I, I think the challenge for book like Sylvia, but but like Signal to Noise though, is you need to find a way. And I understand. I mean, I actually think Solaris have done a a great job with the cover I and mean, some people have said that you know they don't necessarily feel that way about it but i think the way they've placed it the way it looks it looks like a a crossover mainstream sort of 80s not music kind of a book uh and mm -hmm. i think that on what what's difficult in a short soundbite to communicate to a potential reader and this is something that i'd say to anybody listening to this podcast who is wondering well, why would i now pick up this book and I'm going, well, there's a great extensive flashback you know, period of time set in the 80s that honestly could be the Breakfast Club set in Mexico City. Just about. There is a lot of resonance with, with music. Uh, this book, for my money, stands alongside books like you know, Lewis Shiner's Glimpses, uh, Buddy, uh, Bradley Denton's Buddy Holly is Alive and Well and Ganymede. Uh, certainly, genre fiction has integrated with music any number of times with wonderful results and this is a really great engaging result there's, there's great characters there's the setting is terrific it's a really engaging novel if you just give it a chance and i guess the challenge is finding a way to get people to give it a chance yeah that's what they say <laughs> <laughs> i mean just to go back to the cover for a second there is i'm looking at it right now and there's what appears to be a reproduction of if I'm recognizing the logo right, probably a TDK 90-minute tape cassette, which nobody under the age of 50 is going to recognize what that is. Um, but I, I think the issue is that there is, I, I think the, the issue is what you, what you mentioned earlier, that people within one field don't read in another field, and it's very difficult to position something in between. Uh, I have a friend uh, who had the same problem uh, only kind of the inverse of what you do. She's a, I don't know if you're familiar, familiar with her work at all, it's a Cuban writer named Diana Chaviano, um, who had written, she lives in Miami and had written exclusively in Spanish and was the best known science fiction writer in Cuba in Spanish. And when she finally had a novel published, uh, and I, I may be wrong with this, uh, but I think it was Riverhead, it was published as a mainstream magic realism thing. Basically, I think, based on the assumption that if you have any kind of a Hispanic name, you must be a magic realist. And mm -hmm. from her point of view, this was a fantasy novel. It's called The Island of Eternal Love. It's a very good fantasy novel. But nobody in the fantasy or science fiction field ever saw it because it was marketed completely outside our field as a mainstream kind of, you know, here's Garcia Marquez in Cuba. Uh, and I, I don't know if Diana would be mad at me for saying this, but I don't think it went where it should have, uh, gone. I don't think very many people now have heard of it, and that was only probably uh, seven or eight years ago. Mm -hmm. yeah. so in, in other words, yeah. th th that's kind of another uh, box you can get yourself caught in. Uh, Diana thought she was a science fiction writer. She found out that when she published in the States, she's a magic realist. Uh, you can't <laughs> win. No, you can't. I've um, yeah, And I do write magic realism, and I was trying to play with what is magic realism with this one, um, or what it isn't. Um, but, but yes, uh, sometimes I've had some, I think somebody described one of my short stories as magic realist horror. And I was like, no, it's just horror. Why does magic realism have to go always in front of everything that I do? Because not everything is. Um, and, and also ethnic fiction is another thing that, that gets kind of, put in front of you it's you know it's ethnic fiction and post-colonial post is another big one yeah and, and and it's a strange thing because 
I don't know if my book, for example, would be the kind of book that somebody that's interested in Latin American studies would read or something like that. I mean, maybe, maybe not. But, yeah, it becomes like you, you get, you you don't necessarily end up in the shelf where you might think you belong, but that's because um, who you are uh, already has kind of like an implicit meaning, you know. Whatever. <laughs> but also, I mean, that doesn't seem to be the point of this of this story particularly. I mean, Signal to Noise doesn't strike me as a book that's expressly aimed at addressing the issue of ethnicity, of um, magic realism, of what it is to be Mexican or South American. It's a Mexican setting, and the rest of the story, which is interesting and engaging and very accessible, but... It's really about the characters and this interaction with music, which seems pretty universal to me. Yeah, no, it's not supposed to be. Um, uh, it's not supposed to be for the on the one hand educational, which is what a lot of ethnic fiction sometimes is poised to be. It's you know it's supposed to be like you will be enriched. Uh, it's almost like a travel log, you know. It's like a documentary. It's not supposed to be um, a documentary kind of experience. And it's also not supposed to be um, a lot of some of the ethnic fiction that people like or that we're allowed to be is like the feel good kind of drama. And there's like two types, you know, like the immigrant story of the poor immigrant that suffers. Mm -hmm. and, um, and there's like, you know, like basically two narratives that you're allowed to have. And, and I don't think it falls in that category because it, it is drama. It does have dramatic elements. But at the same time, it, it almost seems like we're only giving a few, a couple of scripts, and this one doesn't fall in 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 those couple of scripts. Oh, the other one is like the positive, oh, like like the Joy Luck Club, you know, the yeah. positive ethnic story. Um, mm. And I, I think I don't think this is a negative story. I, I think no. you know it has has a lot of optimism, but it's also not that kind of narrative where you're going to get this, yeah, kind of educational experience and. Uh, look at how nice Chinese people are. That's the thing, you know. Look how nice Chinese people are, or 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 Latin American people. Mm. They're not horrible monsters, you know. This has been educational, and and my book is not like that. I mean, nobody's a horrible monster, um, but it's not supposed to be that thing where you're like, no, I learned something about a culture. Yay! Here's a cookie for reading the book. But, yeah. Um, yeah. But but there is this really. I mean, Me Meche is a. Is that how you pronounce it, Meche? Meche, yeah. Meche uh, is a really strong, engaging character. Though. I mean, she's complex. I mean, there's points where you see, I mean, we're introduced to her in, in 2009 in Mexico City. She's going back there quite reluctantly, really, and seems to have put her uh, connections with the past behind her as much as she can by moving away and moving on with her with life in Oslo. I think it is now. Mm -hmm. Um, how was it you came to go about building that character? And what is it, I mean, because it's a tie-in with what we were mentioning earlier, the post over on uh, Locust Mag about strong right. female characters. What is it that you think makes her a strong female character? I think she is for a number of reasons, but I'm curious why you do, if you do. Yeah, I. Um, it's funny because I was reading today about a study that was done recently and it was about um um in the workplace i think it was oh work analysis your, when you get your report you know your annual report that kind yeah. of thing and they compared annual reports of men and women and uh women got a lot more negative comments in the reports than men did but also almost all the comments had to do with the social character of the woman so for example she's bitchy or she's annoying, or she's mean, and the men almost had no comments about that. So we tend to judge women' um, emotional and social reactions, if we look at that study, a lot more than we judge men. Men just butt heads that everything's okay, but women are catty and bitchy, mm -hmm. right? So it's not exactly the same the same playing field. And one one of the things that I I, I had. I had a very clear idea of who Meche was since the beginning, and she was a character who is very determined and uh, kind of speaks her mind, even if it's 
even if it's not what she should do, she sometimes just blabs and she says it and, and it's like it's out there and she's also defensive and, and, and that kind of stuff. But um but but I but I I thought when I was writing her in the beginning and, and I was wondering if I should let her be, I guess, the full extent of her of her metaness, one of the things that I was wondering was would people like her or would they say, you know, she's she's too bitchy and then I paused and I thought, you know, if this was Heathcliff in like Withering Heights uh, or if she was um, in Jane Eyre or in a number of other books, even with that kind of personality, she would be the romantic hero. So mm-hmm. why can't Mete be Mete, um, who is, you know, not perfect and, and strong-willed and, and many, many things? Why am I trying to rein her in? She wants to be this thing, and yet if she was a man... Um, you know, she would be, you know, like, I mean, they, people like that guy from Fifty Shades of Grey, and he's not nice, and nobody says he's bitchy. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, <laughs> you know, or some other, some other characters, so, you know. So, yeah, so she became, I, I decided that I wasn't going to try to, you know, kind of soften her up too much. Uh, she was going to be who she was going to be. And, uh, and I think Sebastian, her friend, is a lot more of what we might expect a woman to be. She's the one with the easy bake oven and the Barbie dolls. Daniela, Daniela, Daniela is the one with the bake oven. But, but Daniela, I also think has strength. Um, I, I think there's different kinds of strength um, that you can have, and we most often define it just with physical strength and having a gun. But I think women can have different kinds of strength. That's one thing. But but yeah, Meche ended up being Meche because I thought it would be wrong to take away some of her harder edges. That's that's what makes the novel work. I mean, it's, um, I I think this is one of the, um, I think it must have been one of the articles that you linked to from your Locust Mag post, which by the way is still up on locustmag.com if our listeners want to find it, where there was an article about how characters have to be likable. They have the likability indexes that Hollywood uh, studios now use. And it struck me that there were any number of... This is one of the reasons I really do like Signal to Noise. There were any number of points in that novel where you could have made a choice, okay, I'm going to make Mitchie likable now. I'm going to give her something. And you, you never made that choice. You never sort of gave in to the princess uh, sort of temptation. Uh, and she she ends up being a, a, a as a result a much more complex character, um, and and a very interesting character. And that brings us to the whole issue that you were raising about strong women characters. This is uh, obviously getting to your locus mag uh, guest post. That uh, that what we think of as strong women characters aren't necessarily doing women any good. Is that a fair assessment of what you were saying? Yeah. That. Uh, for example, a lot of time in, especially in in movies and action films, uh, we will have one one single woman character who is supposed to, uh, you know, in action films and science fiction, she's just there's just one woman, and then, and she gets to hold a gun and kick people, but she doesn't get to have much of an interior life or much of a function other than looking beautiful while she kicks people. And and mm. and most of the time, getting together with the hero at the end. So when you finish seeing that movie, you almost feel like the studio is telling you, "Hey, you know, there was a strong woman character in Transformers. Why are you complaining?" Mm. Right? And then you go and you think, "Well, that's not exactly what I meant. You're taking just the superficial characteristics and and giving me something well, that is more like the ca- outline." Yeah. yeah, of a woman. If we did that to men, I think, you know, people would be really upset if we tried to pass those kinds of characters and we have and we tried to say that's your hero. That's your hero. Um because yeah, I mean the uh, the the people like Indiana Jones have uh layers and in and, and and everything, right? I mean it's it's a character that you can love precisely because they're three dimensional and then they give us these two dimensional cutouts and they say 
oh, this is a strong woman, love her. And you go like, well, I don't really like her very much. <laughs> <laughs> so isn't the real challenge then to, to be creating women characters in fiction, whether it be on the page or on a screen, that are clearly defined, that are complex, that have agency in their stories, that that's really what it's about rather than physical strength or masculinization of, of women? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you see something like Ghostbusters, which everybody loves, or a lot of people love, you have three, four very different men. They're all very different. They have very different personality traits. And yet they all kind of pop, and, 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 and they have their thing going on, and, and you find them interesting. Maybe you don't you know, like one as much as the other, but they all, you know, they're, they're there. They're, they're real. You can almost touch them. And... And a lot of times you don't get that with with some or with a good number of, of women characters. They just don't they don't pop. So it's I mean it's it's no wonder that sometimes women feel kind of bad and they're like, well, there's there's, there's you know there's nothing to see for me. And then people go like, but there was a lady with a gun in Transformers. No, she had a motorcycle. I think that's what she had. <laughs> she had a motorcycle, right? What else do you want? Um, and then you're like, yeah, that, that didn't fill me up. It was not a nutritious meal. It left me empty <laughs> in my stomach. And, and, and it's kind of sad because, you know, there's all these wonderful men in fiction. And, and I do like a lot of male characters. But we're still lagging, I think, especially in movies and, and somewhat in television, although we're getting better in that area. It's just like, it's like, eh, it's not quite well, <laughs> I, I think you have to make a distinction between fiction and movies in this sense. And I, I, I was reading your blog post and talking about it to a friend of mine who is a feminist by anybody's standards. And um, she, her argument was that it's, what you say is absolutely right about women in movies, but you have the added factor in movies uh, of an actress. Now, the example you gave from Transformers is, is Megan Fox, who is... Um, I just won't go further in that direction. Her point, my friend's point, was that when you look at a character like Sigourney Weaver, who's clearly an intelligent actress, over the course of three Alien movies, becomes a more, much more complex character than she was originally conceived of. In other words, you have the performance which can inform a character and complexify a character, um, mm -hmm. no matter what the script says. And in fiction, mm -hmm. it's completely up to you to make that character complex. The writer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, so exactly. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. You, you're totally right. Yeah, it's a different kind of dance. Do you think that genre fiction as you read it and experience it these days is getting any better at that dance? Um, yes. I wouldn't say that, um, that it is horrible and that there is nothing to read but um i still sometimes buy books and read stories and things that i think i wonder like why do i feel like i'm back in 1965 if that makes any sense mm -hmm. absolutely and i i'm not saying everything no but it it does um um it does feel sometimes like, like we are still lagging in certain areas, and maybe it's worse in certain subcategories, um, like horror fiction, which I really love horror, but, some, but you know, even the cover choices of certain things are really off-putting to me mm -hmm. as, as a woman sometimes, because uh, a lot of the presses that are doing horror are small presses, and I see a lot of titties hanging out, and the girl is like, you know, she's looking sexy, and 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 I don't know, maybe she's got vampire fangs, but she's half naked or totally naked, and and I'm looking at this as a consumer, and I'm thinking, okay, is this gonna be an erotic book or a scary book? Because is she gonna be like having sex with everybody, or is she gonna be like, you know, is it gonna be like killing and death inside? Because I want killing and death. I don't necessarily want her to be, you know, like super hot and that kind of thing. And so that, I mean, that thing happens. And also there's times when you, you know, you know, you grab an, 
you know, an anthology or whatever, and the whole table of contents is is like male. It's all men, and 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 it's supposed to be like some kind of showcase of you know best you know horror of whatever and it's like all men and you're going like well why is this happening because i know there are a lot of women writers right it's not like i don't i mean i know them some of them are my friends it's like why is this strange toc taking place here again was i transported to 1965 what happened so things like that do do happen and and it just it's a strange kind of icky icky feeling you 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 just i don't know you feel that you're like i don't know if i want to read it now (laughs) i don't know man you (laughs) the question you raise is who are the women horror writers and obviously uh that's very interesting if we go back to i suppose if we go back to mary shelley it's not a problem but uh just in the last couple of weeks we lost melanie tim who was certainly a skilled writer um and others have have found successful franchises, more or less. Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough has her vampires, who are more complex than most. Um, and then, and then, I'm not even getting into Twilight and that sort of thing. But is 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 horror a more male-dominated genre than fantasy and science fiction is these days? Yes, I think so. Yeah, definitely. It's it's it is a very um, it's still very much. Um, male dominate and there are women but it's it can be really hard signal to noise to find the signal among the noise and and what i've found sometimes is that the spaces that you have for socializing are not very welcoming to women so i was part of a like a facebook group or whatever um Uh that was related to lovecraft because i'm a lovecraft fan and every few weeks somebody would post uh like a pornographic image with tentacles or something like that. And some of us women complained, and we said, why are we getting these pornographic images of women with tentacles? Because I'm not a member of the Pornographic Women with Tentacle Club. If I was, <laughs> I, would have, I would be upset if I didn't get my image. So we complained about it, and the, a lot of the men there were like, well, you know, you're censorship, or who are you to tell me what tentacle to put up there, or I don't care. Or you know you're a prude, and so I ended up I ended up leaving the group, and a bunch of women ended up leaving the group, and we now have this little private group with like fifty or sixty women that is like Lovecraft and women, because those kinds of things really hurt you. I mean, I'm at work and I do have access to Facebook at my job because I do a lot of social media stuff. I don't want the big titty with the tentacle popping up on my screen when I'm at my job. (laughs) If I'm just casually chasing, you know, checking my Facebook feed or something like that. Um, Or with my children, you know, when I'm at home behind me or any, any number of occasions, it's just not the thing I I like to look at and to tell me that, you know, I have to take it, you know, like I have to take it. It it sounds like you're describing a Lovecraftian version of Gamergate. Yeah. (laughs) I, mean, I wouldn't say as bad, but yeah, it's okay. it's just sometimes people don't realize how uncomfortable they can make others. And as a as a woman, for me, it's just easier to extract myself from that culture and go somewhere else. You know what I mean? And it's I can just go and hang out in some other place. So what happens sometimes is I think for fans and things like that, we just go hang out in another place where you don't see us. Yeah, it is kind of well, like you know the women you don't see. <laughs> but do you find the the rest of the genre is more or less welcoming? I mean, a small press horror particularly has a very poor reputation, I guess, for for this sort of yeah. thing. But uh, do you feel like it's getting easier? I suppose more welcoming, more um, part of the part of the, the normal scene to to be part of a woman or to be a woman in science fiction and fantasy these days. Oh, well, yeah, certainly. I mean, I think if we look back at the history of, you know, fantasy and science fiction and we go back to the 60s um, and stuff like that, there's certainly been a lot more women, um, are a lot more women now involved in, in this genre than in 1965. And they can speak a lot more freely. They have a lot more opportunities. They don't necessarily have to get a pseudonym. Um, so things are really good 
if you make a comparison historically, things are really good. But there's also um, quite a few microaggressions or things that take place that have not been fixed. And so one example was my friend Molly Tanter has her new novel. It's a weird Western coming out. It's called Vermilion. And she was checking her spam folder, and I hope she's okay with me saying this. Yeah, she (laughs) She got this note from somebody, some some, um, made up, some email that was called Molly Molly Tanter is fat or something like that, ugly and fat, gmail.com. And somebody went to the whole trouble of crafting a little email uh, telling her that nobody wants to read a weird Western with a woman, which is what she wrote. I think it's an Android or something like that. Very good cover. And also telling her that she was fat and a bitch and a bunch of other things. And I have gotten emails like that, too, in the past for doing things as innocuous, I would think, because I, you know, as commenting on the cover of a magazine or saying that, something, you know, like I thought that that girl had, you know, was showing too much titty on the cover of that magazine and, and talking about a bit about sexist issues. I've thought, I've suddenly gotten rape threats or things like, you know, you bet you big fat, you know, whatever. And, um, and my friend, Nick Mamadas, who is also quite outspoken was saying, you know, yes. he also gets things, but he get he gets one every four years or every three years or whatever. And in comparison to some of us, we're getting one every month, like one or more, you know, depending on how outspoken you are. I'm, I'm not, I, you know, I talk more about other things, like I put pictures of octopuses and mushrooms in my Twitter feed and that kind of stuff. Uh, so it's very kind of tame in that way. But some other people who are really talking about some issues of sexism and racism and that thing like that, they get bombarded on a regular basis. And this is, these are people, some people tell me, oh, those people are not part of fandom, but that's not true. I mean, that really isn't true. These are people who are part of, quote-unquote, fandom, and they're there, and they can sometimes be really, really mean and toxic yeah. uh, to women in a way that men don't get to experience yeah. quite as much and as I often. I think one of the reasons, and just, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm learning stuff that I did not know. Um, I think you're right. I think men, even somebody like Nick, who you say is outspoken, aren't going to hear this stuff nearly as much as as you would or any other woman. So it's 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 a it's a problem, which is obviously a serious problem. Frankly, is fairly invisible to us old white guys. Yeah, it's it's invisible to a lot of people, and I doubt that you, for example, if you've gone to a convention like I have, had had a guy try to touch your breast or you know or your chest when you're walking down a hallway, which happened to me. Or even um, comment on your clothes. Or even comment on your clothes, yeah. We've, we, we have yeah, dealt with this. And, and how you look uh, physically, that just doesn't, you know, it's not that men don't face issues, but there's all these things that just keep happening. Um, and it is better because now you might have somebody to complain to, for example, if that happens to you, which before there might not have been a committee that would have looked at your complaint. Um, and a number of other things, but it's still not utopia, right? We we haven't gotten to that level quite yet. And since I've also been involved with some literary stuff, which is like not speculative in Canada, it's a different kind of crowd. I have seen how that crowd operates, and so there's clearly there's another way to operate, and we are not quite there yet. And it doesn't mean the literary is perfect either. Uh, it also has its issues. But there's some things that you just don't see happen in those spaces that do still happen in science fiction and fantasy spaces a lot more often. We're talking about barriers and perceptions, and I'm curious as we come slowly towards the end of the hour, I'm curious, how does a Mexican-Canadian woman writing a fantasy novel end up having that novel come out from a British independent publisher rather than from somewhere in Canada or the United States or Mexico or wherever? How did, how did that come about? How did it come about? Um, it was, I was very lucky because I had shelved the book. Um, so I wrote it, and I didn't think it was going to see publication. And to be fair, I didn't really pursue publication very much. At the time, I didn't have an agent, and I didn't have the time to focus on getting one. But So I left it aside, and I mentioned to Lavi. Kedar, I don't, I don't know how to say his name. He's my friend on, on the internet. 
Um, and he, um, at, at some point, I told him that I had written this book. And he told someone at Solaris. So when Solaris was looking for, to read some manuscripts for, you know, just to buy something, they asked me if I would send them something, and I sent them the book. And I honestly didn't think they would buy it. I think I told them in the email, you probably don't want to read this at all, but I'm sending it oh, to no. you. Anyway. <laughs> because, you know, it's nothing. I looked at the catalog. I know their catalog. I've bought a few sure. anthologies and from them. So I knew what they published, and I thought this is completely not what they would publish. But uh, And then, like, months passed, and I mean many months, like six or seven months. So I forgot about it completely, and I thought that it meant that they were gonna not going to buy it, and I was okay with it. But then I got an email one day where they said that they actually really liked it, and they <laughs> wanted to purchase it. So then I had to get an eight that day, so I had to start looking. <laughs> I, I guess I ask because I'm curious as to whether you feel there are barriers that you're facing trying to publish, I guess, that are unique to your background in you know, being in Canada, being in North America, or do you have, is it more a case of having the time to devote yourself to actually get your work out there? And that's the, a different kind of challenge that you face. Yeah. Um, yes, I mean, I think... I've, I've been very lucky, and I've met a lot of really, really good people. I do think there are barriers, and some of it has to do with, for example, what we were talking about, that you are identified by default as belonging to a certain category just because of where you were born. So mm. people may be expecting that I would write things that don't have fantastic elements because I'm Latin American, or that the fantastic elements would be deployed in a specific kind of way. So expecting more Gabriel Garcia Marquez than mm -hmm. what I am. Um, and so I think that certainly is, is a, becomes a challenge because you're not the writer that they were hoping to get, maybe. Um, and, and then there's other smaller issues that pop up, and, and these popped up with some of my short stories here and there. Like there were a couple of stories where... The editor, in one case, asked me to change the name of a character, and the name was a real Mayan name because it sounded fake. Oh. So how do you respond to that one when somebody tells you that an authentic name sounds, fake, sounds yeah. kind of fake, right? I mean, nobody tells you John sounds kind of like it's made up. Can we call him something else? <laughs> you know, that's just kind of strange. And then, And then sometimes also another request to change the name of somebody because they thought it was too hard it might be too hard for you know anglo-saxon readers to um read that name and it was a three-letter name or something like that and i and i thought you know if people read daenerys targaryen and then they're able to type it <laughs> why is it so hard for them to get a three-letter name that begins with an x or something like that you know it's you know, we, as speculative readers, we are supposed to be more open to certain things and able to dive in sometimes into worlds that are completely different. If you're talking about Dune or something like that, you are suddenly in a completely different ecology. People have a different religion. They have names that you have never seen spelled before. Um, I mean, look at Lord of the Rings, and they're doing things that you have never seen anybody do before, Yet we are able to suspend this belief and accept that we're going to navigate that world. We're going to trust the writer that they're going to lead us through that world. But sometimes people think that if it's a different country or a different culture that is real, they won't do it. Fantasy and science fiction readers won't do it. So that's definitely that's a problem when you have an editor that thinks that because they're not going to buy your story. Well, this is what I was going to say. Do you think there's a danger... Sylvia, that editors are filtering these things more than the audience need? I, I think editors are sometimes cautious, especially these days when publishing is a small profit margin business and it's very competitive and you want the book to do well. I can understand why taking risks they may be adverse to take risks or they may not feel that a certain market exists there. But for example, 
nobody knew that there was a market for stories about teenage girls with telekinetic powers that have menstrual problems when <laughs> Carrie came out. Yeah, that's true. That's and a good point. created a movement of horror stories that resonated well into the 80s, but nobody knew that that would work, and yet it did. So I guess that although I understand the need to be cautious, you sometimes being bold can also be a good thing because otherwise we just keep getting copies of something. And uh, that's enticing in a way because you can sell it, but I think it gets stale after a while. <laughs> and also sometimes... Go ahead, Jonathan. And also sometimes, isn't that risk aversion... Isn't there a risk that that risk aversion is actually just projecting your own comfort zone? Yeah, yeah, of course. And and we do get comfortable in many in many ways. For example, editors, uh, if you have a certain Rolodex and you know that certain writers produce really good quality material and they deliver on time and they are reliable, of course you're going to go with your Rolodex. But on the other hand, you also have to be on the lookout for new talent and spice it up a little bit because those writers are really good, but there's also other people out there who might be equally good, might surprise you if you were open enough to give them a chance to, to look at it and not just assume that, well, there's no market for this or they will never buy it because the three-letter name just sounds too weird, you know? It's not going to happen. <laughs> You, 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 you made me think about something which I need to follow up on this on with some friends of mine, but yeah, who on earth would have thought that Carrie ever had a market about, a, about, about an outcast high school girl who starts her period? That, now that you mention that, sounds like the most unlikely beginning of a career that you could ever imagine, and yet look at the career that it began. Yes, that's right. <laughs> it sounds to me like what you really want to do somewhere down the line is write a, if not overtly feminist, at least a women's Lovecraftian story. <laughs> well, actually, aren't and you I'm editing a book of those? Just so like yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm editing um, an, an anthology because I, I wanted to kind of explore that idea in a way, but, but not do it like me, I'm writing it, but let other people kind of oh, speak okay. and say what they thought. I mean, I suspect <laughs> if, if, if we dug a little deeper, and I don't know all the details about Lovecraft's biography, I know he was married and so forth, I suspect that if somebody were to unearth his attitude toward women, it probably would be as unsavory as his attitude toward Italians and Jews and African Americans and everybody else. But that's not the point, sort of. The point is that he had a particular mode of writing which could be very effective. Um, in the hands of different perspectives. And it's one of the things that fascinates me is when you have a tradition of something like Lovecraftian fiction, or for that matter, Bram Stoker fiction, why does it always have to re recycle the same ideas? Why can't you take that essential mythology and reconceive it in uh, terms that you might think of international terms, of multicultural terms, of po post-colonial, of feminist terms? Um, is is it possible to do that? Is that what your anthology is going to do? Uh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> There's certainly a variety of perspectives and um, and and of stories in 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 there and 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 time periods. I I actually I I do love Lovecraft, and sometimes people wonder how I can love Lovecraft. But I'm doing a thesis on Lovecraft, um, and okay. and yeah, and and he's I find his work to be fascinating and the reason why I think I love it so much is because I keep finding things to respond to so I often think I'm done this is the last Lovecraft story <laughs> I'm going to write the last time I'm going to think about that dude but then something pops up I keep having an intellectual or emotional response to something that he said and so then oh. I produce something. And I think that that is, you know, a really good relationship to have with certain writers. And I don't mean that you have to be responding to all writers all the time. But it's like I'm still in a conversation with him. And I think I still have to say things to him. <laughs> so <laughs> I, just, I just keep doing it. <laughs> Interesting. 
Well, I think we're pretty much at the end of our hour, and I'd like to thank you, Sylvia, very, very much for taking the time to join us. I, I, I know that sort of these are busy times. I mean, exciting times with a new novel. I, I hope another new one on the way at some time soon. And the anthology is yeah. coming out when? Because or, or, I'm fascinated by your anthology now. Uh, yes, it's coming out uh, in time for Halloween, so mm, I think we'll be putting it on sale in, in September. That's, that's, that's the goal right now. So it'll be available at the World Fantasy Convention this fall, we'll hope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, uh, Signal to Noise by Sylvia Garcia, Garcia, sorry by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia, is in stores at the moment. It's a really, really wonderful book that I loved. Gary, you've described it as one of the, 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 the great fantasy debuts of the year in your Locus Review. Yeah. Um, and I would strongly, strongly encourage everybody to seek it out and to, to, to experience what's, what's a, a really terrific first novel. And I hope we will see another one soon. Yeah, uh, my agent has a book right now, so... Fingers <laughs> crossed. But until then, until we get a chance to talk to you about that, thank you very, very much, Sylvia, for making the time. We appreciate it. And you thank and I you. Will and Gary, until next week. When we'll talk again. Bye. Still